Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcasts, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Welcome to part two of this episode in which Swami Beyondanada transforms and transcends into the writer and social activist Steve Behrman. Steve discusses the role of humor in unveiling and healing the insanities and conspiracies of our time, talks about how humor disrupts dualistic thinking and how it can heal cultural hypnosis and how it changes as we mature. Sit back, enjoy, and laugh at Steve's unique and insightful perspective. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. You know, I've noticed that you haven't picked on anybody and you haven't mentioned individuals and it's really easy to pick characters right now in our, you know, our scene in America, not to mention the sure. world, but has yeah. that been a conscious choice to, to not do that? Yeah. And I think particularly recently, like, you know, like we were doing a show a short while back and, you know, somebody said, what, what's your take on Donald Trump? And this one, says, we have to be compassionate because behind every soulless heel, there's an unhealed soul. And so, light workers, your job not just to heal souls, but to re-soul heels. And that was that. Mm. So, so the idea mm. is to get is to take people away from that. Or if I'm doing, you know, I remember I did an event. Talk about tough audience. 2009, there was an event called the Transpartisan Citizen Summit. And we had everybody on the left. On the left, we had Cynthia McKinney, the congresswoman from Georgia. On the right, we had Grover Norquist, the guy that wanted government so small he could drown it in the bathtub. He was transformed. First time he came in touch with Bay Area liberals, he completely changed. Now he wants to drown it in a hot tub. Totally different. But anyway, I had to do comedy that accommodated these two groups, and yet the best I could to tell the truth. So the Swami says, okay, for you Republicans, we are offering sensitivity training. For you Democrats, we're offering insensitivity training, right? And I, you know, and I think that part of the part of that truth, the part of the shadow side of the very well-meaning liberal progressives is that they have, I think, in a very toxic and destructive way, cultivated support for victimhood and separating people by identities, which makes it more difficult for people to actually come together and cohere around the virtues and values that will allow us to collectively hold our system accountable. You know, and I think, uh, John, you mentioned, you know, you know, coming from the Christian perspective, and, you know, one of the things that's become clear is that in the deconstruction of religion, for many good reasons, we threw the baby Jesus out with the bathwater. 
And so there is no, in our civilization, transcendent ground of being that has a universal sense. Even though most people on the planet, about 90% of people, believe in some kind of transcendent higher power, whatever it's called. And yet we have a secular, humanist, materialist, scientific materialist, dominant culture that either overtly or covertly dismisses any transcendent religious practice as a form of superstition, or you know, we've outgrown that, we've evolved past that. I think that if you look at you know luminaries like Yuval Harari, who is so lionized by by evolutionaries and progressives. Here's a guy that wants to make the human soul obsolete. And I think we need to, one of the serious problems we need to address is in, in this transhumanist movement and the movement to use artificial intelligence that we don't neglect real intelligence, which is the intelligence of nature and the intelligence of God or however we represent this, this higher power, great mystery unknown that the human mind is not actually capable being the human mind itself of facing and and working with and we have a dominant culture that believes in the primacy of the human mind and i find that as dangerous as the right-wing totalitarianism that we had you know we we all obviously see burgeoning and you use humor to address these issues and in a in a sense you're the you're a kind of world court jester the court jester was the one who could poke fun at the at royalty and hopefully keep their head and you have taken on as your life's work poking fun at but not and I want to add not poking fun as John intimated in any hostile way one of the things I love about your humor is it's all in the service of, of firstly, good, but in bringing people together, not demeaning anyone. And you have, you're playing this role of, of showing the shadow side, but in a, in a very gentle way of so many of the cultural movements and, and issues of our time and the way we think about them. And that just seems like an enormous service. Do you do you view, do you hold this? Do you do this as a spiritual practice? Well, you know, I think it's evolved. When I first started out, one of my first gigs, I was invited to Chicago. This club called the Limelight. I called it the Slime Light. They were doing <laughs> Thursday night as kind of a new age night. And a friend of mine is a musician in Chicago. He said, "Hey, I did a gig there. They might want you." So they flew me in in the winter, middle of winter, to Chicago from California. I had to collect money from the mob the next day. That was really fun. That was so much fun, by which I succeeded. But it was a very, it was not a friendly venue. I'm doing my Swami act and these three drunk guys are being obnoxious. I stopped the act. I said, you know, I think you're baiting me. And when you bait a great Swami, you know what that makes you? That's right. A great. I said, when you bait a great spiritual master, you know what that makes you? That's right, a masturbator. Well, <laughs> the three guys left and everybody laughed. And I said to myself, I'm from New York. I grew up insulting people. I grew up that way. I, I know how to insult people. And I, I said, you know, I don't want to be in a venue where people are feeling like they have to protect themselves. And I think that the most threatening, for the first several years that, that I was doing the Swami, 
the most threatening thing about the Swami was his innocence and open-heartedness because people are not used to seeing that in comedy. So I reason why I'm not on national TV or anything is that I've never done the comedy club circuit. It's never been appealing to me. I would much rather have an audience where I am providing the comic nuance to the information that they're already receiving from their spiritual information. So having the Swami character actually improved my spiritual life because I had to walk that path of being somebody who was not going to be doing humor to hurt people. Right. And I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, of course, there are people who are so damaged that they will take offense at anything. And I think that one of the problems in kind of the uh, this progressive ideology that's been developing is that rather than helping people cultivate resilience, they're rewarded for being part of groups that are considered oppressed or marginalized or and so on. And I grew up in, in pretty much a housing project. I was one of the only white kids, you know, and I got to see firsthand people are people. So when I came to Washington, D.C. to teach in the inner city, I was shocked to find that a lot of the white middle-class teachers were bending over backward to give these black kids easier assignments. And I'm going, how can you possibly help them that way? So I've been watching this go on for 50 years. You know, that what the Southern white racists started was completed by the Northern black liberals who felt so guilty that they could not hold black people to standards like equals. It's really interesting. You know, so that's been something that I've observed. And over the years, I've, in funny ways, I hope, I've been able to point that out. Yeah. And as part of the more extreme sides of the progressive movement have been a heightening of sensitivities to the point where political correctness has become quite extreme in some quarters. And and I understand that there are comedians who won't even perform on college campuses these days because of that kind of political correctness. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, again, we're not on campus, so we don't know what's been going on. But a lot of this stuff is things that are labeled hate speech are very hate. I mean, the anti-haters are, in a certain sense, more hateful than the haters. And unfortunately, the saddest thing is that most of the progressive people I know if I'm talking to them in private, they go, Jesus, that's a bunch of insanity. But they won't speak out against it. They won't speak out about it. I was at, at a recent show. Somebody asked, Swami, what's your take on gender fluidity? And Swami says, well, I'm, I'm old-fashioned. I say, if the fluid comes out the front, you're one gender, comes out the bottom, it's another. You know. And But then I said, it doesn't matter what your gender is as long as your agenda is love. So that's my frame. So you can't, when when you actually s express a truth like that, it's very hard to contradict that kind of truth. So I embedded my own perspective. I mean, could you imagine Aretha Franklin singing, you make me feel like a natural person? When a man loves a person. You know, I mean, when you start to think about how people have allowed themselves to accept insanity, like not acknowledging that there's such a sex as women and men. There is a famous quote that those who, I think Voltaire may have said this, those who are made to believe absurdities become capable of committing atrocities. So when people are brainwashed enough 
to believe ridiculous nonsense and not speak out about it, then they are ripe to inflict horrific things on other people in the guise of the public benefit. So we watched that happen with COVID as people were censored for, they called it, the new term is malinformation, which means information that's true, but doesn't follow the official narrative. And I watched people who I knew as kids were involved in the free speech movement, you know, becoming the same kind of quote right-wing fascists that uh, they were fighting against in the 60s. So this is important right now for people who want to bring balance and nuance to the conversation. You know, break that trance of accepting insane things and point it out as insane, including not allowing people to speak on campus who have different points of view. Yeah, that's a great idea, huh? Yeah, and, and the gift you offer is pointing out these follies and pointing to reconciliation with humor because... The extraordinary degree of polarization in this country and increasingly around the world, unfortunately, for many reasons, that would be another conversation. But it's become such that it's very difficult to have a logical conversation about it. And it's almost impossible to talk someone out of it. But you, with your humor, kind of get underneath <laughs> the defenses and the, the polarization, point to point to the you know, absurdity in some cases but in a gentle, loving way that people don't have to get defensive to and point to the possibility of common ground. And I think that's just such a gift in our time. Well, you know, I think it's really, really important. And actually, if you talk about humor, what does humor do? Humor, there's often an aha in the wake of a ha-ha. And then there's an ah, when we leave the dueling dualities of the head for the unity of the heart. And that's why comedy often happens in threes, a minister, a priest, and a rabbi, right? Minister, a priest, and a rabbi, they're talking about their legacy, how they want to be remembered, what they want the eulogy to be about when they're at their funeral. And the minister thinks, he says, I want them to say he was a family man and the pillar of his community. And the priest said, I want them to say he was a holy man and leader of his flock. And the rabbi says, I want to be, them to be saying, look, I think he's breathing. <laughs> so again, comedy points to the third way to get us off the battlefield of dueling dualities to see a possibility that's a third way. It's a disruptor. It's a disruptor of dualistic thinking because it requires putting two things together that don't belong in a new way. So often, and we laugh at the surprise. It's, I, I, I loved Henny Youngman because he was so, and I have a black belt and borscht belt, so I can say that. I loved Henny Youngman because his jokes were so concise. Here's one. My wife and I were blissfully happy for 25 years. Then we met. <laughs> That's great. Right? That pause gives the, gives the listener a chance to come to a conclusion then when their mind is tricked, they are so thrilled and delighted that their mind has been tricked. So let's note that we like it when our mind is tricked because we know that our mind is the trickster, that our mind cannot encompass the fullness of consciousness. You can't get it only through the head. You have to get it through that combination of the head and the heart working together. And 
you know, that's why that joke is so funny. It works in practice, but doesn't work in theory. Because so many people studying things from the academic standpoint, you know, they're they're chasing after something that everybody already knows. Let's find out how we can do more of it. Let's find out how we can actually bring that consciousness to feet on the ground. So I think part of my mission is to take the pie in the sky ideal and help bring it about as a feet on the ground real deal. And I'm working with a few projects. So one of them is my podcast with Michael McSenty called Front and Center from Political Battlefields to Cooperative Playing Fields. All right. And our, our, that's our first mission. Our second mission is seeking the whole truth together. Because one of the reasons why there's been truth decay is because our government has lied to us for so many years that it makes it easier for truly pathological liars like people we won't names we won't mention to insinuate themselves into the conversation and say, well, the system is lying anyway. I'm a liar, but I'll be on your side. So when you have lesser evil politics, you're always empowering evil. The way that, that this or that narrative works is you must only focus on the evil on the other side, and you must never look at the shadow on your own side. And so that is why we have these incomplete narratives and why the two sides are battling it out. And I think that subconsciously, there's a realization that the problems we face collectively and this evolutionary moment that we're at is so challenging that people would rather devolve into blame. And the new joke, a lot of jokes are not funny anymore, but the new joke is that we've evolved from rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic to actually throwing the deck chairs at one another. So we've we gotten more active, right? Yeah. Steve, I'd like to ask you about, since so much of your comedy has both spiritual and political elements, and you also have a deep understanding of the nature of comedy, how it works. I'd like to talk about, uh, have, have your take on relationship with spirituality and spiritual practice and realization. A couple of couple of instances to ground this. There's a saying in Zen that you can tell the degree of the master's awakening by their laugh. And I kind of believe that. Similarly, I have I had a friend, uh, a Zen master himself, who said, you know, after he had his big satori, he literally had just had trouble stopping laughing for the next six months. And it seems like there's something profound and important there. I'd love to have your take. You know, that's really, that's really, really true. I mean, I was around Swami Satchitananda. In fact, there's a photo we have of me presenting him with a box of nothing because he said nothing will guarantee your enlightenment or something like that. Nothing will make you enlightened. And the, we were just talking with a friend who studied with the Maharishi many years ago, the giggling guru, Dalai Lama, all of these people. And I think what it is, is that we take ourselves so seriously because the ego wants to be in charge. We don't have in our so-called civilization we don't have a sense of the transcendent. We don't have a sense of a common transcendent. So many kids are lost and they're looking for identity in some gender identity rather than looking in the identity as, I want to I want to have buttons saying, I identify as human. That's all. That would be the button that I would wear. And then all of a sudden, we have true minority rights where everybody has the right to be exactly who they are. 
And I think that as spirituality evolves, and I know that that's really part of the focus of, of your podcast, the evolution of spirituality, it's recognizing that everyone needs to have a relationship with the transcendent that's their unique relationship. So in that regard, there probably is 8 billion religions on the world. The second piece is bringing that spiritual understanding to the physical world. There was a Eastern Orthodox saint that I just heard of, Saint Maximus the Confessor, not a joke, Saint Maximus, in the 8th century. And he coined a phrase that could have been coined by some hippie at Haight-Ashbury, cosmic love. And he said that the entire world runs on cosmic love and that the purpose of human beings was to reunite the cosmos in love. And one of the ways we do this is through those old-fashioned ideas called virtues. And he said, he didn't use the word fractal, I'm using the word fractal. He said that all of these virtues were a fractal of this one love. And when we use, when we practice these virtues, gratitude, generosity, all of these things that we don't learn in school anymore, although we learn how to be politically correct, we don't learn these in school, that is a way of bringing heaven to earth. Rather than anticipating heaven as something out there, in our daily practice, we do this. And that's why I'm partnered with an amazing project called the 12 Habits of Unity. Elaine Park took the golden rule, and she and some people in a little town in Pennsylvania crowdsourced these 12 habits to practice, one per month, that bring heaven to earth. And it's a way for every individual to have agency in their world, the world that's small that might impact the world at large. So to answer your question in, in a very roundabout way, the transcendent without the imminent, the I'm enlightened and I'm on some mountain somewhere, without the way of bringing that love to the planet is not fulfilled. So I see that the future spirituality is a way is actually combines walking the talk. It combines living those principles, being the love that you are. And so in the practice of doing that, as we release these grips of the ego, which are going, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I safe? All of these questions that are about me versus you, the more we let those go, the more we're able to experience the natural joy in life. And that laughter bubbles out and it's contagious. It's contagious. And when we find people like that, we, we met a toll taker on the Delaware Turnpike. And this woman was such a bright light. And I realized that everybody that stops at that toll booth, when they had toll booths, got her darshan. Everybody. She had no spiritual path. She was just a person who was practicing love every moment. New person, new person, new person in her, in her job as toll taker on the Delaware Memorial Bridge. Beautiful. Yeah. There was such a person at the same on the Golden Gate Bridge too. Black guy who just made you feel... I, I think I met the same person going into New York City one time. Yeah. 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 They're angels in these various guises, we think. Yeah. Yeah. Just so beautiful. You know, one thing I'd love to have your take on is is you're familiar with integral and with uh, the idea of adult development and... It's certainly very important and, and yet not well-known theme, but 
as one begins to understand the stages of adult development, one see that the, sees the world changes. One has a dramatically different under, perception, understanding, and relationship with others and with the world as we mature. And I'd love to have your take on how humor matures. Oh, well, I call it the uh, the the elements of humor. There's four stages, um, earth, water, fire, and air. Earth humor is the three stooges. Probably the first joke was somebody laughing. It's like somebody uh, asked Mel Brooks. He did the 2,000-year-old man back in the day with Carl Reiner as his old Jewish man. He says, tell us, what was the first joke? And he goes, oh, the first joke. A lion walks into the cave. And Murray, the jokester, the prankster, takes the lion by the tail, goes, yaha, over the shoulder. The lion comes back and eats Murray. Did we laugh? So <laughs> there's a connection, I think, between, between humor and relief. You know, you beat the saber-toothed tiger into the cave. There's a sense of, of relief. And that laughter is a release of energy probably heard about animals like rabbits and so on when they escape from a predator they do this ritual where they shake themselves off and they shake off all of this trauma and then they're back to being a rabbit again we don't have that laughter may be the way that we that we do that laughter may be the way that we release our trauma and so i think that you know so at the early stages of laughter it's physical humor. What do kids laugh at? Kids laugh at peekaboo. Now you see it, now you don't. Very metaphysical, right? Kids laugh at going to the circus and they see this big fat clown with a little tiny head. Things that don't match. Kids laugh at, at things that don't match. And so as our humor matures, we're able to take on more of the elements. Water being emotions. You're able to release emotion through humor. When I first started uh, doing my humor workshops, there was a participant who was a therapist, psychotherapist. He told a story about one of the first clients he had after graduating was a young woman who had been sexually molested by her grandfather. Now, he realized this is a very serious kind of thing. And he he's kind of walking on eggshells because he doesn't want to say anything that's going to be hurtful. He asked her an instant question. The question was, when did your grandfather molest you? And she said, before he died? Well, the therapist... I, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. The therapist found this very funny, and he burst out laughing. And the little angel boy said, stop laughing. He couldn't stop. She started laughing. And the two of them are laughing hysterically. She laughed until she cried, and that was the first time she could talk about this experience. So that laughter physically was a way of releasing emotions. Laughter is a way of releasing mental structures as well. We laugh because of our surprise. And finally, we laugh because there's truth. There's truth that's being liberated. My favorite true, true joke story that actually happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis is an example of how a joke works on all four of those levels. When news of the missile crisis hit, American and Soviet delegates had been meeting to discuss possible trade between the two countries. News of the missile crisis, everything stopped. Tremendous tension in the room. I mean, people might never see their families again. And finally, one of the Soviet delegates very timidly raised his hand and said, 
I suggest we each go around and tell a joke. He volunteered to start. His joke was, what's the difference between capitalism and communism? In capitalism, man exploits man. In communism, it's the other way around. (laughs) The whole place came down in laughter because, first of all, the physical stress was released. The emotional stress was released. There was a fire of surprise. He's telling a joke about his own system. And finally, the fundamental truth beneath it, the air of truth, which was, you know what? Beneath all of these isms, we are really all one human heart. So the power of humor as humor evolves is to hit on more of those cylinders. A kid would not, you know, certain levels of, you know, you have to be a certain age to understand a joke. And then you've passed that and now you're doing riddles. And then you do knock-knock jokes. And then you're actually at the point where you can design your own joke because you understand that it involves surprise and elements that don't go together. So there's a maturing process in humor. But there's also the maturing process of bringing emotional and spiritual maturity to the practice of humor and having the intention that it brings people together rather than blows them apart. Yes, and that's one of your really your gifts is in bringing people to, people together instead of victimizing or polarizing in any way. And there's a related question here I'd love your take on. As far as I'm aware, it seems like all the the vast majority of the politicians are not conservative. Uh, let me put the other way around. This. I mean, humorists are not. Yeah, mean, yeah. There seem to be so few humorists on the right or in, among the conservatives. I think mainly that's that's always been the case because humor has been about iconoclast, about breaking. Uh, busting idols, busting transes, breaking tradition, defying authority. You know, Groucho Marx, perfect example. You know, Margaret Dumont, the, the perfect foil, being this, you know, haughty woman. You know, uh, I'll never forget the face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. So Groucho was kind of the character, the everyman character, kind of going like this to the world. Now, what shifted in the past 10 or 15 years is that the progressives have become the new conservatives. They have become the people without the sense of humor, unless it's a sense of humor making fun of those other people, like Donald Trump and the Trumpists and all of that. So right now, we're in a transition. Bill Maher is in a very good space because he is coming from this open-minded, what used to be the progressive perspective that was open-minded. He's coming from that, And he's willing to debunk and deflate some of the rigidities that have developed on that side. So until very recently, most of the rigidities were on on the conservative side, wanting to keep people, you know, tradition. So comedy has been anti-tradition, it's been anti-authority. Now that the authority is over here, we now have people like Jimmy Dore, who has changed sides. He's much more conservative. He's making, you know, he is telling truths that Colbert can't tell because of where Colbert is on. The comedians right now who are on mainstream media, they cannot speak out about certain things. They cannot be critical of wokeness 
or transgender movement, or they will lose their jobs. They'll be canceled. They'll be canceled. And the fact that people I know who who somehow go along with that, because they it's like first they came for the anti-vaxxers. Well, I wasn't an anti-vaxxer. That's where we're at right now. When you start to allow censorship from the top down, you know, right now, people, you know, okay, Biden's in charge. Well, Trump might be in charge next time. You start to set a standard of what authority is able to do, and then you end up, you know, creating an authoritarian system. So comedy has always been anti-authoritarian. Think about Charlie Chaplin, the great dictator, Groucho Marx, Duck Soup, all of these making fun of that. But right now, what has to be made fun of is the rigidity and totalitarianism on the left. So that's changing. You have more people. uh, If George Carlin, bless his heart, were alive today, you know, he'd be he'd be considered a right wing asshole if he were alive today, because he could not help but point out the naked emperor. Do you see any shift happening from the this this really this far left, so far left it looks right, progressive beginning to loosen up a bit? No. Well, you know, I'm looking at this. I'm saying that people do not want to lose affiliation with their tribes. When I decided that uh, for, for my medical reasons, I was not going to get the shot, I was canceled by my drum circle, drummed out of my drum circle by people who wouldn't let me be part of that anymore. And so uh, I noticed, you know, as soon as I did my own investigation, I realized that that narrative was not the full story. Not that it was, it's not the full story. And so what I'm seeing is that people don't want to be canceled by their tribes. People do not want to lose their friends. They don't want to lose their community. A friend of mine, 2016, he voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries, voted for Trump in the election. He lost all of his friends except for me. I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I didn't cancel him. And so the point is that when people are put into fear and anger, those are that's manipulation. So part of comedy right now is to deconstruct the narratives and leave people standing and say, you know what? Mm-hmm. These narratives are toxic narratives that we are made to believe. And if we only listen to our own side without the perspective of going, hmm, I think that's propaganda. I think that's propaganda. There could be good propaganda done for good reasons. But to say that, oh, they are trying to manipulate my way of thinking. That's really the next level of thinking that somebody said that when things devolve into uh, polarization, the casualty is nuance. So there isn't any nuance. There's no way for people. There is no mainstream media where RFK Jr. can have a conversation with Anthony Fauci. There is no mainstream media where you can actually point counterpoint, crossfire, where you can bring together people from different points of view in a space of listening so that the public can be educated because the intention is not to educate the public. The the intention is to inculcate the public with this narrative or that narrative. That's only my Mm. take. And, And your gift is to undercut commitment or fixation on narratives, I would say and bring them to awareness, and it's a beautiful contribution. Steve, is there, is there anything else you'd like to add, or John, or anything? John, yeah, if you have one more question, I'll take another question. If not, I'll... I'll well, I just want to comment. We were talking about, you know, yeah. wokeism and the far progressives, and the, the, it drives me crazy, <laughs> because I agree with almost everything that the wokest, you know, are saying. 
you know, as far as racism and this isn't yeah, that isn't, and if you're, you know, a bi or trans or whatever, everybody yeah. should be treated with love and respect, you know, and if you want a different pronoun, just ask, I'll learn it, you know, I'll call you whatever you want to be called. But by being so grandly self-righteous, they're giving the right, the one issue that they could really make hay with, you know, and fan the flames of hatred, you know, so it's, it's doing the opposite of what, what it's instead of being more accepting and loving and, and, and more compassionate, and gentle with people, they just make people more brittle and angry. And it's not a contribution that we need right now. Yeah, five years ago, it was five years ago, I found out about this woman who is teaching at a fairly well-known meditation center here, somewhere in the country. I guess she made a comment that she didn't want pen- she didn't want people with penises, however they identified, to be using the same restroom as her. She got fired from her job. Fired. So... I offered to interview her on my WikiPolitiki radio show, and she finally refused because she just didn't want to go public with this. So the level of intimidation, there's a book. You you may be familiar with the book. Are you familiar with Martine Rothman? I think her last name is Martine Rothman. She used to be Martin, and she's changed genders, and she's written a book about transgenderism. And all of the dogma that kids are being taught in school now and being reinforced in college come from this one book that says that there's no such thing as gender, that gender is a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, it's an idea. It's a very interesting idea, but to impose it as, as dogma so that people who identify as Christians, for example, who say, you know what, in my book, there's only boys and girls And I'm okay if a boy wants to marry a boy and a girl wants to marry a girl and whatever they call themselves. I'm okay with that. I've given up. I'm not fighting that anymore. But the, but my take of the, the left, now the Democratic Party, they're the new corporate party. And so they're willing to take on identity issues and make that, make it about that so that people don't unite to confront the high level of corruption in our system that transcends both political parties. As long as people can be involved in in these culture wars, they cannot unite together. So my mission coming from 50 years in political science, my mission is to bring people together, first of all, to rehumanize one another. And second of all, maybe more importantly, to work together for the things that everybody wants. So if my humor can serve that, that's what I'm here for the rest of my time. Wonderful. Well, Steve, you are a gift to us all, and Swami Beyond Ananda is, uh, as I said, what I w- wanted to be when I grew up, but uh, <laughs> may have left my run a little late. I haven't uh, grown up yet, by the way, so we got time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Steve, perhaps you'd just like to mention your podcast name again. Okay, yeah, please. The podcast is called Front and Center with, uh, with Steve and Mike. It can be found on YouTube. In fact, what I will do is I'll send two in the midst of something else this morning. I'll send the link that you can pair with that. I'm also working with Lane Park 12 Habits of Unity, and they have an awesome campaign in Washington, D.C., one of the oldest neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., Make Kinship Cool in Washington, D.C. To It's kind of like the experiment that they brought all the transcendental meditators to D.C., in uh, 1993, reduced crime by 23%. So not only are people having the intention, but they're actually practicing these 12 habits as virtues in the world to actually change the human relations 
in this neighborhood to see whether markers like crime, truancy, homelessness can go down and be addressed. And then from these little pods, begin to look at how can we connect the good in this community? I'm working on a book that's not done yet. I can't say much about it with Richard Flyer, F-L-Y-E-R, who founded the Conscious Community Network in Reno in the 2000s, where they created Buy Local Network, Food, uh, Local Food Network, Get to Know Your Neighbor Network. And he created an organization called Connecting the Good. And the idea was bringing together all of the organizations and individuals in the community that were doing that and was radically inclusive. See, now on the progressive side, inclusivity means only certain groups, but they will not include people they disagree with. We have to change that. That's irony deficiency. We have to actually <laughs> gently, by pumping ironies, bringing that to realization, begin to activate the sanity that is dormant on that side that needs to have a voice. So that's part of practicing these virtues is a way for people to not ask, oh, are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you Christian? Are you a Muslim? Whatever. It's simply from your heart, from your personal relationship, whatever that transcendent is, to bring that love, that cosmic love to the earth in whatever way you can. And that's how things will change from the ground up. If we can't evolve as individuals, then we will not be able to do it as a, as a society. Might it be so? Sorry, I want to end with a joke. I was thinking about being a white man and all the heat we get for that. And I was yeah. thinking, there's been good stuff that's come from white men. There's the Beatles. Yeah. And then, well, there's the Beatles. And then <laughs> there's the Beatles. <laughs> in, in, in they took Chuck Berry's music, but we don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I think I think that, that that's real, really, really a good point. And I think that, again, this is really about all of us together. The website, the, the, the platform I'm working with, with uh, 12 Habits is 12 Habits for all of us. That's radically inclusive, all of us. And all of us, the, or let's say the 90% of us who are not sociopaths have this intention to bring love to the world. We want to cohere that together as a counterbalancing force. There's a famous quote from Martin Luther King that I'm paraphrasing. And he says, you know, when, when those who want peace are as organized as those who want war, we won't have to march for war anymore. So the organization is not a top-down organization where you swear fealty to a certain belief system like the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which is what wokeism is resembling these days. Instead of that, you have people realizing it from the bottom up and practicing in their lives in a voluntary way from their own agency, from their own individual connection with the ground of being. And that's the evolution that we're seeing right now. It's fractal. It occurs individually in our families, our communities, and finally in the nation and world as the system has to change because the consciousness has really changed. Yeah. May it be so. Well, mm. well Steve, this has been a, a gift to us and you're a gift to everyone. And uh just want to thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I'd love to thank Swami Beyond Ananda too, but he's disappeared and doesn't seem to be around. Yeah. But, he's, uh, but he's transcended his ego. So, in fact, he takes great pride in his humility. So uh, he, wonderful. He, <laughs> Hopefully he'll be world famous for his humility. Uh, Steve, <laughs> yeah. thank you very much. What a gift. 
to be with and you. And thank you too, very, very much for thank what you're you. doing and and kind of spreading this idea around. And as the Swami would say, may the farce be with you. <laughs> Great. And and Swami Beyondananda may be coming to a city near you. Check uh, the show notes and uh, look online. And uh, thank you all for being with us. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.